Hello and welcome back to the Remember Who Made Them podcast. I'm Venetia Lamana, one of the co-founders of this campaign. If you're new here, I really recommend you go and listen back to episode one of the podcast, where my co-hosts Swati, Davey and Ruby and I discuss solidarity is not a t-shirt. From there, you can head over to our Patreon and listen to the follow-up bonus episode. This is titled Rants and Raves, and each week we'll be ranting or raving or both about the best, worst, and most confusing elements of the fashion industry. You can access these bonus episodes for as little as a pound, and you're welcome to donate more as every penny of our campaign goes direct to supporting garment workers and their unions. Today we're discussing fashion has a racism problem with Arja Barber and Salamisha Tillett. At the beginning of creating Remember Who Made Them, we were catalyzed by the impact of COVID-19 on garment workers and the exposure of the exploitation that has always been at the centre of the global fashion industry. Sparked by the countless and ongoing murders of black people at the hands of police brutality in the US and the murders of Breonna Taylor in March and George Floyd in May of this year, there was a global uprising in support of Black Lives Matter. At the same time, we saw many fashion brands treating the groundswell of anti-racist activism as a PR opportunity, sharing hashtag Blackout Tuesday and hashtag BLM Instagram posts and making one-off donations. But many are refusing to disclose their own anti-racist policies or share how many people of colour hold senior positions in their companies. Not to mention the sheer volume of brands who have built their empires on appropriating black culture or outright stealing designs from black creators. We cannot let brands get away with a performance of solidarity on social media, only for them to go back to normal when the issue is out of the headlines. Fashion racism is built into and extends from the trade policies in the 1980s and the 1990s that expanded Western corporations' labour and consumer markets. As workers and women received more rights in Europe and North America, companies actively chose to move production to countries where workers and women didn't have as many rights. This means they can exploit the mostly non-white, poor female workers and communities with unfair wages, unsafe working conditions and weak environmental protections. As many studies have shown, free trade agreements like the North America Free Trade Agreement and the policies of the World Trade Organization enabled Western and largely white fashion brands to move their production from the US and Europe to countries in Latin America and Asia, where labor is much cheaper and labor laws are more difficult to enforce. As apparel manufacturing shifted to the global south in the 80s and 90s, so too did the human and environmental costs of mass manufacturing. To help us start making these connections and centre our conversation on the issue of race in the fashion industry, we got in touch with Arja Barber and Salamisha Tillett. Arja is a writer, personal stylist and style consultant living in South East London. Her work focuses on sustainability, ethics, intersectional feminism, racism and all the way systems of power affect our buying habits. She can be found over on Instagram at Arja Barber, microblogging daily and I'd personally really recommend supporting her Patreon as it's glorious. Salamisha is a feminist critic, activist and curator. She is currently the Henry Rutgers Professor of African American Studies and Creative Writing at Rutgers University, Newark, and the Director of the New Arts Justice, an art and activism incubator at Express Newark. In 2003, Salamisha and her sister Shahrazad Tillett founded A Long Walk Home, a non-profit that uses art to empower young people and to end violence against girls and women. 
Tillett is the author of Sites of Slavery, Citizenship and Racial Democracy in the Post-Civil Rights Imagination, and the forthcoming memoirs In Search of the Colour Purple, The Story of an American Masterpiece, and All the Rage, Mississippi Goddam, and The World Nina Simone Made. She also writes for Culture at the New York Times. It is my real pleasure to now hand over to Swati for the interview with Aja and Salamisha. Salamisha and Aja, just super excited to welcome you onto the podcast and to talk about why fashion has a racism problem. And to honour the people who made our clothes, just want to start off, as we always do, with tell us what you're wearing today. So Aja, what are you wearing? So I am wearing um, a pair of bespoke trousers from the Emperor's Cloth. They use dead stock fabric to make your trousers in any size. Um, I'm wearing a very old thrifted denim shirt. It's 20 years old, but it's had a really good run. And then I'm wearing a shirt that I did buy from a slower fast fashion brand many years ago, but it says it's my Friday shirt because it says Friday on it. Um, And I always tell people wear the fast fashion that you have, give it a good life, and then think about moving away from that cycle. And um, I wish I knew we were going to start the conversation this way because I'm literally just wearing a pajama top and also a beachwear bottom. So uh, very casual for the morning conversation for me. No shame. Different time zone. <laughs> I know. Also, just like I want to be wearing beach clothes, but it's absolutely not the weather to be wearing that where I am. Not but UK. I'm loving the embracing of the comfortable fashion approach that... Um, that the coronavirus and this lockdown has has given us sort of a new window into. Um, but at the same time, we know that the coronavirus and, you know, subsequently seeing all of the movement for Black Lives and the Black Lives Matters movement has really brought home the issues of systemic racism in fashion to the forefront Um, And thinking about how fashion is founded on the oppression of black and brown bodies, Remake have been referring to uh, modern day fashion brands as the new neo-colonial slave masters exploiting from places in the global south and moving those wealth and resources to the global north. Around fashion having a racism problems, can you tell us more about this? Uh, Yeah, so from start to finish, I would say the fashion industry has continued to perpetuate colonialist and racist ideas. If we're looking at production, most of our materials that go into our garments come from countries that are very resource rich, but very financially poor. And why is that? Why is it that these countries that have all these amazing resources that have been extracted by the world 10 times over don't have the same amounts of money as countries where we've extracted these resources from because we've set up a racist system. So you are literally taking resources from countries in the global South where poor black and brown people live. Um, You're using those resources. You're also using the labor force. And then you are creating a product which is shipped halfway across the world. It's consumed in a much more wealthy country and it's consumed rapidly because of the cycle of fast fashion. And then we move on to the next thing because we're constantly told that we have to buy, buy, buy. But what do we do with the leftovers? Well, we put it in a bag and we donate it to charity. But the charities have tons of these bags because everybody's participating in the cycle. So 90% of what they receive either ends up in landfill or get shipped to another country in the global south 
where it creates all sorts of issues, ruins the local economy, and sits around in a rotting trash mountain. So from start to finish, we have a cycle where in the middle, people with the most amount of wealth and privilege enjoy the product. But at the beginning and end of the life cycle, we're dumping on countries that are traditionally pillaged and full of black and brown bodies. Yeah, and I would just add to that, like the historical underpinnings of this, right? So in the United States or in the New World at large, like the relationship between the exploitation of um, enslaved African and African-American labor and the cotton industry, they were so inextricably linked, I guess is the best way of saying it, or so tightly tied to each other that that becomes the basis for what we now see as a more global um, and also um, quite, I guess, in the same way that there was a, an abolitionist movement that needed to end slavery. Um, we can see the beginnings of such a movement in the conversation we're having today, but also the ways in which, I guess, that founding trauma of slavery and fashion that really began um, with the transatlantic slave trade has just kind of continued in all of the ways that we're talking about today. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. And I think that the industry of fashion is just exploitative and racist for me in so many ways. The way that it shows up today, we know that uh, modern day slave labor is still ever present um, around the world. Most garment workers don't even make a living wage. I know we've also talked um, earlier before the podcast recording about how, you know, most of the world is in debt um, this is, you know, a system that is continuing to keep people um, not being able to accumulate wealth, not being able to save, and that level of poverty being passed on for generations and generations. And we're seeing that, you know, garment workers, they're making less than a living wage. At this time of coronavirus, millions have been dropped by garment factories, by these big brands who are refusing to pay up um, and are left at the point and the brink of starvation. And we also know that there's an extreme lack of diversity or inclusivity, both in-house at some of the corporations um, and in publications and front-facing in terms of models, influencers, social media and marketing. Could you guys give us some more on um, how the fashion industry upholds systems of racism? I personally, on my Instagram, basically made a pledge that I was not going to take money from the big fashion brands that have problematic issues within like their organization. And the reason why was because I think that a lot of these brands are so performative in like everything that they claim that they want to do. So we already know within like the influencer landscape that there is a wage pay gap between like white influencers and BIPOC influencers. We know that because we've talked about it 10 times over and there's accounts that are like dedicated to it. So For someone like me who uses Instagram and has a big audience, I had to think of a way of monetizing my space so that it didn't compromise my morals because you have two things. One, I am critiquing an industry that needs to change. And two, I am talking about race and racism. And these conversations aren't something that these companies want to have until they can profit from it. And so if I'm over here basically going, you need to stop behaving in this oppressive way and stop doing this and that, who's going to pay me? And so in some ways, I think I gave myself true freedom because 
we've seen companies silence black and brown people on the internet for talking about these topics. Oh, can you please not say white supremacy? Can you please not say this? I've heard about it. And so mm-hmm. I basically had to say, I'm not going to monetize in this way because I'm going to continue to critique the industry and I'm going to continue to talk about race. And that was, that was my strength in a way was making that call. Um, but the industry has proved again and again that it doesn't seem like they're really ready to embrace the things that they claim to care about. Um, and you saw that with the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Squares and how you had all of these people within these organizations being like, oh, interesting that this company will put up a Black Square. I'm a Black person. Let me tell you about my experience. I also loved your quote with regards to the, the solidarity or the performative solidarity that brands were showing to Black Lives Matters and particularly your, I don't want your solidarity if you're refusing to pay garment workers and causing heartache and strife for folks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's one of those things where we treat, corporations do this thing where they try and humanize themselves. And that's extremely dangerous because if a corporation were a human, it would be a psychopath. Um, But (laughs) one of the biggest issues is that they'll do a little bit of something from column A while doing something harmful in column B. And As consumers, unfortunately, I would love for there to be more government regulation, but there isn't enough. And so we basically have to hold all of these corporations to a higher account and say, either do all the things or go away. But like, Mm -hmm. if you're not treating garment workers fairly, then which black and brown bodies do you care about? If you are crapping on black people that work within your organization and creating a hostile work environment where they can't tell you when you're engaging in racist behaviors and which black or brown bodies do you care about? Like, let's be specific here about what you're actually saying and what you're actually doing. Could not agree more. Salamisha, I loved your article uh, for the New York Times. It's time to end racism in the fashion industry. But how? Yeah, I mean, I actually came to that piece um, in many ways, uh, intrigued by the fact that across various cultural industries, whether it's Um, theater or film um, and fashion that there were so many of these open letters uh, to the industries that these artists are working in to kind of declare an end to the racism, both macroaggression and microaggressions that people experience and also a set of demands. And so um, what I found, however, though, um, because of the way in which the fashion industry has so many different hierarchies and so many different organizations and so many different sectors that it is difficult to find a unifying voice, even though I think there are lots of different people and organizations who um, can speak about the consistency and the um, pain of experiencing racism. So for example, there's an organization like the Kelly Initiative, which uh, were 300 different people. So from designers to stylists, Um, who were uh, critiquing uh, the CFDA's response to, um, you know, the the emergence or reemergence of Black Lives Matter um, and the CFDA's statement in response to the killing of George Floyd. So that's one example. But then you also have someone like Aurora James, um, who has the 15% pledge where she was going to um, Sephora, for example, or Target and saying, you know what, you all should have 
shelf space dedicated to black owned businesses, at least 15% of the shelf space um, in your stores. And by shelf space, of course, that means not just self shelf space, but also um, distribution lines and networks and access to capital. It was a very expansive campaign um, to black businesses. And so those are just completely two different strategies. One is about hiring and the other one's about purchasing and buying. And yet you'll see that these different campaigns are emerging all at the same time. So I was really interested both as like a critic who looks at how different industries have been responding to this moment and then the specific ways in which people in fashion um, have been uh, taking this moment to expose deep-seated racism um, within the industry itself. There is so much entrenchment of racism this system we know is historically built on a system of racism and it continues to perpetuate in so many ways that it almost feels like an absolute beast a bit like when you think about how would you dismantle capitalism or patriarchy and it feels really similar all of those things are ever present within the way that the fashion industry manifests today Um, and I think that we need many different approaches to dismantle it but I'm also really curious to hear what you think is is the way that we should be thinking about a future of anti-racist fashion well I'll I'll speak um and then I think it's kind of um adding to the conversation that we've already been having for me what was actually very interesting about the various entities that have been organizing here in the United States um or at least the ones that we profiled in the article uh, that it did not extend to a kind of collective bargaining practice, or right? it did not extend mm-hmm. to the ways in which garment workers or those who um, fit or positioned at the uh, lower end of the economic hierarchy are then experiencing racism and so from in, in classism. And so for me, I think any effective uh, campaign to address racism in fashion really has to start with those who are the most vulnerable and the most exploited, and then um, can kind of like trickle up versus a trickle down uh, practice that we often see in certain industries to address these issues. So um, that would be my push uh, for how any organization that's emerging in this moment or any uh, anti-racist um, and, uh, and racial equity program that's emerging should really be thinking about labor practices. Um, in addition to hiring, because hiring I think is part of it, um, which is what forth the Kelly initiative has put forth um, to kind of get around or address the deep nepotism that makes up the fashion industry, right? Like it's not clear um, how people get jobs. It's not clear who's put on. Everything seems to be so, uh, so such a lack of transparency in the industry reproduces um, insidious forms of racism. But I think that should also extend to then how we think of um, those who are most uh, economically exploited for it to be a really robust movement. I think for me personally, it has to be a shift in power. Um, A lot of times when you look at these companies that are pledging to do better and you just type in like board of directors, what do you see? You see white faces and often you see the entire board is white male. So like, what sort of change can we have and how can an organization claim to be feminist or anti-racist if the power at the top is not shared? And so that's one thing that these organizations have to realize is that if you are not shifting the power 
in any direction, then you really can't claim that you're going to like jump on this movement and be better because nothing really changes if the power stays the same. One of the things that you've both brought up is is about power and how we build power. And in the last few weeks, we've seen different brands and different factories are completely, you know, they're not allowing unionized workers to return to work. Just this morning, I read about how, you know, Bangladesh's pregnant workers, you know, they're losing their job. And so, you know, the different labor rights, but also reproductive justice issues are coming out for them there. And I think also, you know, I read an article this morning that I shared with Venetia, Ruby and Davey just around, and uh, the Guardian's uh, article, seven ways that you can help garment workers, and not one of them even spoke to supporting unions. And one of the key things, which is about building worker power. And I think, Salamisha, to your point, we do need to look and start with the people that are the most oppressed, um, the mo- that they have the most to lose and the least sort of bargaining or collective power that's even being created for them. Would also love to get your thoughts around your takes on cultural appropriation. It's so rife in both fast, but also luxury fashion. Can a brand ever show appreciation instead of exploitation of a culture? So somebody asked me this recently from a big tech company. What is the difference between appreciation and appropriation? And the answer is so simple. I was literally writing this for a project. It's the most simplest answer ever. Do the people that you are, you know, appreciating the culture, do they feel appreciated? And if they don't, then listen, you know, like I can't speak to cultural appropriation on every level because I'm not a part of every culture. I can speak to what's appropriative for black people. And I, Even then, I don't think all black and brown people will ever agree. But, you know, if there's somebody who's, you know, you really learn a lot from, take what they're saying to heart. But also, where, again, is the money and the power? So I I always use this example. Like, I remember a few years ago, Dior did this ad for the perfume with an indigenous man dancing around and Johnny Depp. And the perfume was called sauvage which sounds like savage obviously indigenous people are not happy about that now what would have been an appreciative move for me would have been if you know say dior decided that they were going to make some some shoes with indigenous art on it and they got together with the lakota tribe and said we want you to make shoes for us and we're going to pay you a really really good wage and this is going to be your cut and then there was a collaborative thing then I would actually buy the shoes and I don't buy $800 shoes, but that would be something that I would think this is something I really want to support because that's what collaboration looks like. It looks like approval from the culture that you're claiming to appreciate, but that's not what happens. Usually it's just taking an idea from a culture, watering it down and, you know, integrating it into your capitalism as usual. That's appropriation to me. Yeah. And I also, you know, my other life, um, I come from academia. And so the question of plagiarism and citation are really important. Actually, that's, you know, the currency of academia is by attributing um, the source, the original source of your material. And so I find it that it find it interesting um, that it seems so hard for so many brands and for so many influencers to really uh, pay homage or pay respect to the 
source material for their work or for their inspiration. So I would say citation. And then I also deeply agree with this idea of collaboration, both um, in terms of the spirit of it and what that means, but also the economic um, sharing of wealth uh, being another way to both address and then actually redress, uh, you know, centuries or years of exploitation and, and the kind of invisibility of the original sources. So I would just say that it's not that hard, um, but it does seem to be quite difficult for people who um, want to embrace their creativity at the expense of others. And so it's just kind of like a politics of citation and a, and a practice of collaboration, I would underscore in this. And at the end of the day, if you're not sharing any of your profits from the culture that you take from them, what are you really actually doing? Absolutely, 100%. And um, I'm reminded of a brilliant um, collective, actually, in Guatemala called Afedes. And they're a grassroots movement of these incredible Guatemalan weavers who've actually been campaigning for the intellectual property to their fabric. Um, and I love what Angelina, who's the the leader of of the the activist leader of this movement, she always says textile and our weave was what the colonizers didn't take. They didn't burn the textiles. They burnt our books. They burnt everything else. But our textiles remain, and they're the same ones that get exploited. I'm sure we've all seen in Zara or in a high end store as well these kind of Guatemalan or beautiful Central American prints and weaves with no idea of where they come from or any money actually going to them and and this movement actually campaigned for getting the intellectual property to their rights and they were the first group globally to be successful an indigenous group to be successful in that and I think those are the models that we should be trying to champion where it comes to the way that culture and and its roots to fashion actually get appreciated and get recognized and also get the flow of resources that they need as well. I also wanted to loop back to something that you said, Arja, just around the sort of top level positions um, and, you know, making sure that we diversify who sits at the top. And I think I'm just reminded by um, an incredible academic, actually, Minha, um, who says the idea that increasing the number of non-white people in top level positions will produce anti-racist effects in the workplace. Researchers Devin W. Carbado and Mitu Gulatu calls this the racial drift trickle-down effect. Worse, the focus on increasing people of colour's access to high-level jobs misses the larger point that these elite jobs are conditioned on the exploitation of people of colour in low-level fashion jobs. And I think for me, it's a great connection of, of race and class as well, and just wanted to get your thoughts on, on those intersections. Um, okay, so the trickle down racial theory. Um, well, I guess I was. This is kind of what I was talking about before with the ways in which there are all these collectives um, and open statements that are being uh, distributed around the country, and yet when they don't take into consideration um, the ways in which racial capitalism is actually functioning, um, and the way in which, like we have been talking about, garment workers themselves are continuing to be exploited then it's not really that transformative. It's partly transformative, right? It's about access, resources, and capital for a certain group of people, but it's not necessarily changing the system that even prevents those even elite individuals from having the same kinds of access and power 
that their white peers may have. So I think that's, and you know, I kind of sound like a kind of cultural Marxist in this way, but I do think it's a much more um, robust and much more revolutionary tactic to kind of just think about change from the bottom up versus the top down. But I would say at the same time, it also depends on what kinds of people are in those positions. So obviously not any arbitrary black person who is on the fashion board council or who's running a fashion house, um, that doesn't mean that uh, they'll lead to substantial change. But it does mean that if you have certain people who are committed to like anti-racist practices, that it may shift in small ways, not significant big ways, but small ways, the way in which the organization runs, the way in which it may treat people, and also the kind of politics of like, you know, recognition, right? So this is the debate about Obama being the first black president. On one hand, you have a symbol um, and you have an African-American family in the first, in, in the White House. And that does have a lot of power. The symbolism of it does have a lot of power. And at the same time, Black Lives Matter emerges during that administration, right? So everyday Black people are still experiencing vast amounts of racism and the Obamas themselves were experiencing racism. So there's a power to symbols um, and fashion traffics a lot in symbols, but then there's also uh, ways in which those symbols can prevent or inhibit what we, I think, are talking about in this conversation as substantive change. Yeah, I think you've actually summarized that like better than I could. And I think when someone says something really good, you just need to be like, nope, you nailed it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Under the comforter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, Aja, as well, that also reminded me just about that conversation that we also had earlier around, you know, Boohoo being a huge multi-million dollar brand um, that is owned by people of color, but is being investigated at the moment for slavery practices, gross exploitation and cultural appropriation in its black brand. Right. And just wanted to give you a space to, to maybe pick up on that. Well, so I always tell people like, people of color can participate in oppressive systems like that is not new because when you exist in a, a world that has tons of oppressive systems you want to game the system just like white people do um and i tell the people who sort of my readership that it's fine to critique boohoo but you need to make sure that you're bringing that same sort of energy to big white owned companies when it looks like everyone is piling on the company that is owned by marginalized people. That's when it looks like racism. Now, if you're spreading your critiques around because there's plenty of family owned, you know, fast fashion companies, Hey, H&M looking at you um, that are owned by billionaires. And so you know, I just think that people need to be very careful to spread the critique around. You know, obviously Boohoo is being targeted because their prices are extremely, extremely low. And also because they manufacture in the UK, which goes back to that old colonialist idea that like, we care more because this is the UK and this shouldn't happen here. Um, and so there's a lot of layers there, but I see, I, I'm not going to be the person that does not critique black and brown people who are profiting from an oppressive system. 
but I will make sure that the white people around me know that the expectation is that if they're only looking at Boohoo, then yes, it does look a little weird. It's been just brilliant speaking to you, um, hearing your incredible insights uh, and your thoughts. And we just want to thank you for all that you do. One of the things that I always refer back to is the honoring of my ancestors. And I think Salamisha, to your um, to your note earlier, who would you like to honor or cite? Honoring the work in this space, uh, honoring the work before you, around you, and in front of you. For this conversation, I guess I would like to honor both of my grandmothers, uh, Loretha Lee Griffin and Hilda Dolly uh, Ramdu Tillett. Two women um, from two different countries, one from the United States, the other from Trinidad and Tobago both who left their homes um, and their families and at some point their children to create a different world for themselves um, as migrants and immigrants. And so I just want to pay homage to them here, but also they were quite fashionable people. And so a lot of their avant-gardeness, I believe, has helped shape how I think about art and politics and culture today. I honor both my grandmothers as well, um, Anne Barber, who passed away seven years ago. Um, she was so into fashion and so into, she was kind of my icon. Like I really love the brand Marameco and so did she. They've been around for many years. And so I, I hope that in some part of the universe, she's watching what I'm doing and very proud. And then my grandmother, who is still living, um, Emma, she is so just interesting and she she loves the things that I wear even though she's in her 90s now don't tell anyone I told you that um but she's just a really fascinating person I don't think she fully grasped what it is that I do but I think that if she did fully grasp it she'd be she'd be here for this conversation amazing I love that I too honor my grandmothers on both sides both who um, were part of the partition of India and so uh, left their homes as refugees to resettle with just the clothes on their back to restart life again and they both recall those clothes that they wore that day when they had to suddenly flee from their home and, and seek refuge elsewhere and also from my incredible mother who just embraced is such a beautiful love for fashion and has just instilled in me a deep love for saris and uh, the beautiful fabrics of the subcontinent I'm lucky to be a part of. Thank you both so much. This has been such a brilliant conversation. No, thank you for having me. Salamisha, your work is incredible. I'm so honored to um, be on this chat with you. Like just really, really look forward to connecting with you more. Yeah, where are you based? Are you? I'm in London. I'm American. I'm from okay, West yeah. Virginia, but my okay, partner is London. English, so I'm in London. Uh, that's nice. I feel like everyone who's in Europe, I just I feel good. I feel happy for them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate I a, that. I had a, a friend send me a picture from Paris this morning from actually a, a, a fashion shoot, and I was like, that looks nice. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ah, on rooftops in Paris. Okay. <laughs> I literally tell people this. I'm like, listen, like I'm not saying it doesn't have its racism, but like. Can you let me enjoy my healthcare? Like, no, enjoy. I, I enjoy that. Enjoy away. Please. I, I, I bemoan no one. So I begrudge no one. So there you go. More yeah. to come. But this was great. Thank you so much for having me on this conversation. And Swati, I have a question. You, We left off talking about saris. And one of the questions I get all the time, and I always tell people, 
I can't answer every question about cultural appropriation because I don't belong to every culture. But people ask me, well, you know, I'm going to a wedding in India. Is it appropriate? And I always say, ask your host, ask them what the dress code is. You know, it's, it's different for different people, but you know, if everybody is going to be wearing saris, ask your host what you're supposed to do. That's, that's the best way to answer that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I just feel like, you know, if you're going to an Indian wedding, if you're going to, you know, someone's house and someone's gifted you a sari, I feel like you should absolutely like wear it and honor it and treasure it and wrap it in love that it came with and respect, I think. The thing that really annoys me is when it's sort of you wear it as part of fancy dress because you're like, well, it isn't like it's technically fancy dress because you wear it when you want to be fancy, but it's not like a costume. That's exactly you know? what I'm it's saying. Like, like, don't wear it to a it's festival. Not like you should wear yeah, don't wear it to a festival. You know, don't wear it for Halloween or something, yeah. you know, or like a fashion fancy dress party. And yeah, I feel like bindis also come with that, that I'm like but you don't know the significance. Oh, that was all on Gwen Stefani in the (laughs) 90s. I'm literally writing about this because even as a kid, and I didn't have the vocab for cultural appropriation. I feel like like vocab is so important in these conversations and finally having the words to express why something is wrong. But even as a kid, I remember being like, why is it that people make fun of the Indian kids for wearing that, but then Gwen Stefani does it and it's suddenly a trend? I feel, so my mum's like a yoga teacher as well. And she was just like, oh, all of the way that yoga is portrayed today. It's, she's just like, it's all, you know, it, it's just typified by white women who are usually blonde, who are not really wearing anything, doing all the asanas. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, it's just against everything that you, that, that yoga is for. Yoga is a spirit spiritual practice and actually it does relate to this racism issue because you know when you think about yoga it it is a path to spirituality it's a path to looking inwards and it's deeply connected to your ethics and your values as a person Mm -hmm. it's been sad to see so many um you know these yoga influencers not even talk about what their ethics or their alignment is to movements like black lives matters or others you know and you're just a bit like what kind of culture are you trying to share or trying to teach others about you know what is a substantive basis for your spiritual journey if you're not willing to be in solidarity with others that's what's more important to any spiritual practice is a sense of fighting for justice for looking at yourself and your role within community and within society for the betterment of the world it's not about I don't know your paid partnership with aloe yoga or whatever these like Lim- big fashion women once again i just look at the money and i'm like the yoga industry is what a trillion dollar industry so you know if if all of that is is being somehow funneled back to the culture then the economic landscape of our world would look quite different yeah well, this is another conversation i guess we should maybe we should do a podcast just on yoga i would love to like i know it's not quite the same topic but no i love i love talking about this I have this whole thing I wanted to do, which is like every time I go to a new city, I always eat fried chicken and I also do a yoga class, right? So because I feel like you learn so much about a place based on these very two different kinds of experiences because they're not often in the same location to get like good fried chicken and then to experience a interesting yoga class. You know, so I have lots of things to say about it, at least in the particular ways in which the United States in terms of race and class and geography I was writing a big thing about cultural appropriation and that was just the point that I made was that yoga is a huge part of like 
the global culture, but yet the money that has been made from it becoming a huge part of our global culture has not been funneled back into its origins. And that's what tells you that we have to have a conversation about it. I think as well, like one thing just that came up recently is it was like World Yoga Day a while ago. And, you know, like a lot of people that I know, I have like family members who are also yoga teachers. They like completely boycotted it. Because if you look at the origin of World Yoga Day, it was started by Modi who's the current um, leader in in India at the moment. He sold it globally as like, let's honor where yoga came from, which is, you know, in one way, a message that really resonates with people, certainly like me in the diaspora, which is, yes, of course, we need to recognize the origins of yoga mm-hmm. and honor that. But I think on the other side, Modi is, you know, he's a Hindu nationalist that is completely aligned to caste. And, you know, there are lower caste people, there are Muslims, there are people who are not Hindu who are suffering, you know, in exactly the same ways that we look at for Black Lives Matters. There are, you know, similar movements that have been catalyzed by the Black Lives Matters movement in India, which is talking about how the caste system is a culturally aligned kind of system that upholds racism within an Indian context. And so by honoring Uh, World Yoga Day, you're upholding some sort of Hindu nationalism and upper caste kind of rhetoric and ideology in India. And so you should be speaking out against it and not sort of honoring it in that way, but finding more authentic ways to honor yoga and where it comes from that isn't about you know, continuing to perpetuate forms of injustice elsewhere. And it just reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Fannie Lou Hamer, which is, nobody's free until everybody's free and all of our freedom is tied to one another yes absolutely absolutely that's really interesting thank you I feel like I've learned so much during this conversation we've also got like totally over just in like non-planned chatter but I've been enjoying it and um Venetia and Xavier are like don't let them stop this is amazing <laughs> Thank you so much, Swati, Arja and Salamisha for that fascinating conversation. I'm now handing over to Davy to bring our conversation back to the people who make our clothes. Fashion is powered by women of color. Of the 74 million textile workers worldwide, 80% of them are women of color. As neocolonizers, the fashion industry upholds the same structures of racism and white supremacy that persist everywhere else in society. It's going to take real commitment and hard work to dismantle that to finally pay a garment worker a fair wage, to hire more people of color as creative directors, brand ambassadors, and influencers, and to stop stealing cultural symbols as part of the latest trend. And so much more that Aja, Salamisha, and Swati were talking about. For the Remember Who Made Them campaign, we are committed to amplifying garment worker voices. To inform the campaign, we've already been in touch with several worker groups and unions and many garment workers around the world. Our approach is grounded in feminist principles to not engage in extractive practices and to honor local expertise, knowledge, and time. We know garment workers are busy organizing for their rights, and when they're not, they deserve spaciousness for joy and rest and time with their loved ones and communities, just like us. So we move to fit in with their schedules and timelines. We are committed to compensating individual garment workers directly via an honorarium for any stories they share or time they give. And furthermore, all the money that we raise through your generosity via Patreon, that's going to go directly to donations for garment worker groups, collectives, and unions. 
For this week's episode, we wanted to share this beautiful poem by Wu Xiang, a Chinese garment worker demonstrating the connectedness of our fashion industry from the person who makes our clothes to the person who buys them and wears them. I want to press the straps flat so they won't dig into your shoulders when you wear it, and then press up from the waist, a lovely waist, where someone can lay a fine hand and on the tree-shaded lane caress a quiet kind of love. Last, I'll smooth the dress out to iron the plates to equal widths, so you can sit by a lake or a grassy lawn and wait for the breeze like a flower. Thank you so much, Davy. I find Wu's poem so powerful and important, and I hope our listeners will too. Speaking of our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We are genuinely delighted to have your support. We'd like to take this opportunity to give a huge shout out to the incredible team at Pentagram and Do The Green Thing. Ashley, Naresh, Albie, Chloe, Katie and Robin. Our wonderful illustrators, Judith, Holly, Sophie and Magali. Our lovely web designer, Gina. G at Patreon. The masterminds behind our music, Melissa LaRue and Colin Emmanuel. And of course you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You are now an integral part of this journey and campaign we'd love for you to subscribe to the show share it with a friend and follow us on instagram at remember who made them and do be sure to click the show notes for lots of useful resources links to our guests and information about our patreon see you soon yeah.